Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Great story, should be somewhat familiar to you this morning. Don't want to ever take it for granted that um, we all know everything about the scriptures, but we're just simply looking at getting them to Jesus. It's all about our one. What will we do? What are we called to do in order to get them to Jesus? That is the goal of the time that we're focusing on evangelism in this time. And who's your one? As I look back this morning, I see three orange balls. So we praise God that three gospel conversations happened this week. Praise God. Every time you have a gospel, when you have a gospel conversation with your one, that's where you are actively sharing the gospel with them. You come and put that orange ball back there to help us see the progress that's being made. Now, you just, one gospel conversation, one orange ball, okay? If you have multiple conversations with the same person, don't keep putting orange balls in, okay? One ball, one person, all right? So if you've got like five ones and you have five gospel conversations with all five of them, put five orange balls in, okay? That's kind of how that's working, right? I don't want to see a whole bunch of, I had 10 gospel conversations with one person because we're like, we want to see the progress that's happening. So we praise God for those three gospel conversations. We pray that those three will be spurred on into um, uh, into transformation, into trust um, in Christ. This morning we look at uh, this passage. If you will follow along as I read in Luke chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 17 and see what these four men did to get their one to Jesus. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let us pray. Lord, I pray your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path, showing us this morning our greatest need and an even greater provision to meet that need. Father, show us Jesus this morning and transform our hearts and our lives to be more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Friends, there's at least five gospels preached today that don't work. I want to share a couple of the resources where I pulled these from. These are not unique to me. I didn't sit down and come up with them this week. One is by Trevin Wax, about it's, uh, several years old. Um, uh, woo, yikes, wow, 2011. Man, that's almost ancient uh, text there. 2011, so it's a little, it's not as new as I thought it was. But uh, it's called Counterfeit Gospels, Rediscovering the Good News in a World of False Hope. It's by Trevin Wax. It's worth your time to read. He walks through several of these that you'll see here in a moment in the list of five that don't work. Another one I've mentioned before by Dean and Sarah called Getting Over Yourself, Trading Believe in Yourself Religion for Christ-Centered Christianity. I'll have both of these. Uh, you can peruse through if you'd like to or order them for yourself. But uh, those are a couple of resources that are used in building that list that you're about to walk through, we're about to walk through. But let me share with these five gospels preached today that don't work in order for us to get to the one that does work. Uh, because what we don't want to do is we don't want to go out and share a false gospel conversation as we're working toward sharing the gospel with our one that God has laid on our hearts. So here's the first one. It's a therapeutic gospel. Where in the therapeutic gospel, the fall is seen as the failure of humans to reach our potential. Okay? Sin that happened in the fall and the fall itself is seen as a failure of humanity to reach our potential. Here, sin is primarily about us and it robs us of our sense of fullness. Okay? You should already be able to pick up where this is wrong. <laughs> Christ's death proves our inherent worth as human beings and gives us the power to reach our full potential. The church helps us along our quest for personal happiness and vocational fulfillment. The problems and doubt come, though, when the therapeutic gospel encounters suffering. It makes no provision for suffering. When suffering is encountered, encountered then there must be a lack of faith. All you need to do is read the book of Job to understand that that is not true. Problems arise when suffering comes. It also leads to a diminished view of sin. Sin then is viewed as acting against your own good, right? Because it's about us. It's primarily about us. It keeps me from reaching my full potential. So it is an offense to you with no concern of offense to God, mainly because it's viewed that God ignores our sin with the therapeutic gospel. Why then does anyone need grace? Grace is costly. Grace is transformative. We need the grace of God. The second gospel that is preached today is called the judgmentless gospel. It's judgmentless. The restoration is more about God's goodness than his judgment of evil or his response to rebellious humanity. Jesus' death is more about defeating humanity's enemies, death, sin, Satan, than the need for God's wrath to be averted by his sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So here we see that as Christ is on the cross, he is not a sacrificial, atoning lamb of God for us. And the boundaries now between the church and the world are blurred in a way that makes personal evangelism not urgent and unnecessary. 
Here you'll find the everybody's going to heaven gospel, where everyone is going to be saved and everyone's included. The big theological word there is universalism. Takes away any need for hell or any reason for hell being out there in eternal life because eventually God's going to save everyone. There's no judgment on sin. Well, if we read scripture again, we'll go back to the word, you'll find that's got lots of holes in it. The third one you hear me say often, it's the good old fashioned prosperity gospel. It's been around a long time. Sadly, this is one of the fastest growing parts of the worldwide church. Many in other uh, nations and other continents where the gospel is quickly spreading, unfortunately, have been turned on to the prosperity gospel. And they see the Western world as the most prosperous nation really in the history of man. And they say there must be a connection. And so they, they, they buy into it. But the prosperity gospel teaches that God guarantees health and financial wealth if we just have enough faith and practice a few biblical principles. Teachers of this prosperity gospel proclaim that every true Christian should expect physical health because it is a part of the atonement and is essential. It's essentially guaranteed to us as Christians by the blood of Jesus. You ever sat next to a loved one who was dying, yet who loved Jesus? I've seen a family sit next to their mother and some yahoo came in the room spouting this stuff off and it nearly broke them all. Because he sat there and had the guts to tell that lady dying of massive amounts of cancer that she didn't have enough faith. If she just had enough faith, God would heal her on the spot. That's prosperity gospel thinking. It obscures the real work of God that he does because he does heal and he wants to bless. But he does so according to his will. Some are blessed financially while others struggle. But when you start believing that he does so because you did X, Y, and Z, then you fall and pray to that false gospel. It leads to a sense of entitlement. Entitlement may be one of the greatest enemies of the church in, the, in North America today. The longer I stay in it, the longer I see it. And yet the very definition of God's grace and mercy do not and will not lead to a road of spiritual entitlement. That's where the Pharisees were in our own story today. Prosperity gospel. The fourth one is the consumer gospel. We might call this discipleship by microwaving. Microwave discipleship. The gospel promises to provide everything a person needs to go on. Convenience, speed, Twitter length, truth, 140 characters or less. Instead of the long path of discipleship and spiritual growth, we go with programs and methods that give fast and easy results. And we can count the numbers. It might be called, instead of McDonald's, McDisciples, Jesus, trust him your way, whereby trusting Jesus and discipleship is optional. We can go deeper in that if we, need, if we had time, but we would just also look at this as not the way. We take what we want and leave the rest. Jesus just said, follow me. 
The fifth one, it's the activist gospel. This one's fairly easy to spot too. Here, the kingdom is advanced through the efforts of the Christians to build a just society. Some have taken this so far as to think that just society then will, will enable Christ to come back. When everybody is right, then Jesus will come back. We are the answer to our prayers for a better world. That's also known as the social gospel. The power of the gospel is demonstrated now through political and social and cultural transformation brought about by Christians who are involved in those places. And we'll find our unity around social projects and political causes. We could also call this the old-fashioned liberalism because it accommodates culture. And truth is your truth. Or can we really know truth at all? This gospel took away the need for a savior by taking away the seriousness of sin. You take a text of scripture, create a new interpretation, removing the once exclusive teachings of scripture like the exclusivity of Christ. There's only one way, the wrath of God, and have now determined that only Hitler deserves hell. Instead of gospel urgency seeking to rescue the perishing, our spiritual need, it seeks to fix the most urgent needs of our society or poverty or those seeking social justice. That is not the gospel of scripture. That is not the gospel that saves. The true gospel is where Jesus said, follow me. That's the truth. Follow me. Come and see. Come and die to yourself. Now go and tell. Friends, Jesus is the entrance and he invites you to follow him. So get up and start walking. It's in our text today. There are several groups of people in the presence of Jesus that day in Capernaum as he's teaching where he meets this one's greatest need. Friends, Jesus in our text today has addressed our greatest need. As he's here in Capernaum, Jesus has returned home. Many had heard that he was there, so naturally they begin gathering around him. They'd heard some things. Maybe they'd seen some things, and they want to check him out. And Jesus here takes the time and begins preaching or teaching them. No doubt they're amazed at his wisdom and his knowledge of the scriptures and how he's applying them. Not only were they just normal people of the community there, but there's also a very important discussion that was going to happen with the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. These were the guys who had great knowledge of the law of God. They were edumacated, if you will. Scholarly interpreters of the law of the Old Testament, they knew it better than anybody. You'll remember we talked about that briefly as Jesus called his disciples what that was in that disciple-rabbi relationship and how hard and how strict they were to learn the law. They were known for their strict piety, their observance of the law in public. They very, took very seriously the command of God to obey him and to be holy. So strict did they take it, take it that they took that biblical command of washing the body 
in preparation for worship, they simply reduced that down to the washing of hands. They tried to apply the law to everyday life and the applications of law, but they also continued to expand it. Made it difficult for the people to live under and to follow. Many of their laws and the extensions of those laws were put into place so that it was next to impossible to violate it. I would say they were living in another type of counterfeit gospel known as the moralist gospel, where redemption comes through the exercise of willpower with God's help. Here's how you win and keep God's favor over our life and our endeavors by following steps one, two, and three. For the community, we hold one another to that standard. But there is no grace in that gospel. Only trying to earn favor with God. And grace, by definition, is unmerited favor of God. But Jesus had something to say about their religious piety. If you go to Matthew's gospel, chapter 23, he gave them there the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, teachers of the law. Matthew 23, verses 1 and following says, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. You get the point. These Pharisees are trying to address Israel's greatest need, our greatest need, by whitewashing the tomb while neglecting the inward bones of a dead man. While the one who is teaching in this moment in Capernaum has the power of the Lord with him to heal. So while Jesus is teaching and preaching, these four men arrive with their friend who is paralyzed. We don't know why he's paralyzed. The text doesn't give us that insight. Maybe he was paralyzed from birth. Maybe he had an accident. We don't exactly know. But this is an extraordinary display of faith and trust. In verses 18 and 19, today, we might hear that chainsaw buzzing and grab some kind of weapon to keep somebody off our roof from cutting a hole in it, would we not? Back then, we're talking maybe about two feet. I don't know if that's two feet. Preacher math is like two feet, but you know, about two feet. There's wood laying across the roof, spaced about two to three feet apart. There's mud, there's grass, there's plants, dead stuff all smashed in there to keep as much rain out as possible. And these four guys arrive at the scene. The house is too full. They cannot get in. And so they make their way to the roof. Could you imagine sitting there? It's not like they just started you know, like stepping on it, trying to poke a hole in it. They would have had to have some kind of pickaxe or shovel or some kind of tool to start digging. And so here's Jesus talking. Most likely they start hearing noise up on the roof. Little pieces of dirt and mud and grass start falling down around the room. And they think, what in the world is going on here? It would have been messy. We're talking a hole that Jake from State Farm is not going to be able to repair. <laughs> this is mayhem. 
starting to break out in this room. But we look at verse 20 and we see what Jesus saw. When he saw their faith, the man's been lowered down. He's in the center of the room. These four characters are looking down, perhaps into the room, and he sees their faith. Whose faith? I think it's all five of them. You got the four guys plus the paralytic. He sees their faith. It is a display of faith that they are showing to get their friend, to get this man to Jesus. And verse 20, but seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. I wonder what the look on the faces were, what the body language was saying. Body language is so much of communication. I, I wonder what was happening. We don't get that description here in the text, but I just wonder, what was, there, what was the language being said? What was being said in that room, but not verbally? Was, was there murmuring? Who does he think? If certainly the Pharisees were thinking it in their heart because Jesus calls them out on it. He says nothing about the hole in the roof. He says nothing about the man's paralysis. He only looks at him and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, in this moment, addressed this man's greatest need. There's a story of <clears throat> a college that had a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, an established football team, and they wanted a mascot. So for whatever reason, they decided to go with a goat. Maybe they knew that was the greatest of all time. I don't know. But the question was, where do we keep the goat. Two of the students offered to keep the goat in their room, and the head of the sports department got wind of this, and he approached these two young men, and he said, well, guys, I hear you're willing to keep the goat in your room, but oh, what about the smell? To which one of the students replied, the goat is going to get used to it. The goat would indeed get used to it, but friends, God does not get used to our sin. Sin is a violation, it stinks, and it's a transgression of the law of God. This is our greatest need. There is zero doubt this man had big problems. He was paralyzed. He had to depend on his four buddies to get him around. And yet Jesus knew his heart. And Jesus knows all of us as well as he knows that man on this day. He knows his heart, and he announced his verdict. I wonder how many times that man had fussed at God, complained to God about his situation in paralysis. I wonder how many times he complained that nobody cared for him, that nobody loved him, that everybody just walked over him or walked around him and never, never spoke to him. I wonder how many times he complained to God, and yet here is the Son of God saying, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are wiped out. These five travel to Jesus for a visible transformation, but what they got was far better because they got an invisible transformation. Sins are wiped out. Friends, our greatest need is that our, our greatest need and our greatest problem needs fixing. Our sin problem is a major issue. Now, in Jesus' day, and still to some degree today, people believe that paralysis or physical illness or an ailment is a consequence of sin, and it certainly can be. 
You'll read of a man who was born blind that Jesus gave his sight back to him. And the man is then questioned about who healed you? It's Jesus. And then they go to Jesus and said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that's a common thought. Very common thought. Jesus replied, neither, but it was so that the glory of God would be displayed in his life. It doesn't matter. The, matter, the, 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 the issue is that his sin is now fixed. And in doing this miracle on this day, Jesus surely addressed the greatest need that we all carry with us, even our one. Now, you got the Pharisees and scribes on the other hand. They're not letting this one go. <clears throat> they're thinking in their heart, they have not said it out loud yet. Who is this that speaks blasphemies? It's clear that the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, these guys know the implications of what Jesus had just said. They know that only God has the power to forgive sins. That's right theology. They are right about that. And so when Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven, what Jesus has just done is essentially amount to blasphemy from their point of view which blasphemy is simply disrespecting or mocking God. In their eyes, Jesus exercised a privilege there that is only reserved for God. So in one sense, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. What they fail to realize is that Jesus is fully God, the Son of God in human flesh, that he has come to dwell, dwell with us. Luke has already shown us in his gospel, Jesus, the divine son of God in human flesh, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And when it comes to who he is, Jesus has, in effect, raised the stakes by closing down all the options. He is either God or he is a blasphemer. He is either the author and bringer of life or he is a living lunatic proclaiming a total lie. They didn't get wrong, their assumption about God forgiving sins. What they got wrong was their belief that Jesus was not the Son of God, at least in their minds, even though the truth is he is. The problem here, where Jesus fixes it, is that a claim to forgive sins cannot be verified. There's no way to evaluate whether or not the man's sins had actually been forgiven. And so Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing their thoughts, he questions them. He wants to know, he's digging in to see those who are skeptical. Do you, do you know for certain that he has the authority to forgive sins? So he's going to answer that question. He, he gives them the proof by making the very next statement. When he says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. The false gospels out there get that backwards. We want all the benefits first, and then we'll deal with the sin and all the other garbage later, where God says, no, I got to deal with all the other garbage first, because that's what's going to keep you out of hell, because I want you in eternity with me. And when Jesus said, is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it harder to say, get up and walk? It's harder to say, get up and walk, because there's going to be immediate response. Either he's going to keep laying there, which proves Jesus is a fraud, or he's going to get up, pick up his mat, 
call down his buddies and say, we'll come back next week and fix that hole and go off to home. That's the harder thing to say. And Jesus quickly shows him, shows them all that he is no fraud. Either he is God in the flesh or he's a fraud. Now they know. Now they know that Jesus has the authority to forgive that man's sins and still today, our sin. But what's amazing is at the end of the story, look at verse 26. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God. Wow, goal accomplished. They were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. But watch this. Nobody is recorded by Luke as turning to Jesus and say, will you forgive my sins too? Folks, you've got to turn to Jesus and we've got to get our one to Jesus. We have a real issue. While we may and most likely will experience some kind of physical issues in our life, whether it's been from birth, injury, or illness, the real problem we face is sin. Your one has the same problem as you do. And that primary message of Jesus up to this point in his ministry is found in Mark's gospel, chapter one. You find it in all the gospels. It's simply this. His message is repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Church, it's not enough just to know God or know the right things about God. You'll see the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they were that group. They knew the right things about God, yet even though they knew a lot of good things and right things about God, their hearts were far from him. You're not going to get there by keeping a set of rules and trying to live a moral life. Worshiping God in, in some form or fashion is good, but it doesn't get you there either. These people worship God for what they had seen, but none of them repented of their sin. Here in this moment, this man is this man going away? It is well. It is well. Come on, you're supposed to echo me. <laughs> With my legs. He's not singing that, is he? It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. His sins had been dealt with. Jesus put his finger on this man and every man or woman's that ever was, is, or will be's problem and greatest need, the need to be put right with God, the need to have our sins forgiven, the need to be reconciled to God. And at the most foundational level part of our life, in raising kids, our marriages, fulfilling our vocational calling, living it out in retirement, grandparenting, parenting again as it all seems to come back around these days in a world that is being torn apart at the seams, a world that is topsy-turvy, we have a real need to grasp the most important thing, the most important need, which is to be put right with God. Jesus, only Jesus, is able to do that. He said the fields were ready for harvest, but the laborers are few, so we must pray. We must pray because as much as the world needs Christ Jesus on the other side, we've got Christians who pull away from the assurance of the missional call of Christ on our life that Christ gave us because they lack the assurance of the truth, power, and the presence of Christ, 
and the revelation of his gospel to fix what ails us. When we think of revival and renewal in the church, it happens when we get back to the simple truth that we have a sin problem and Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come to rearrange our social structures. He didn't come to reconstruct our national social order. He didn't come to protect us from the issues that are thrown upon us by culture. And he didn't come to fix the issues of a confused church. He came to save sinners. And he came to reconcile the lost, make us right with God. Listen, I don't know where your heart is. I don't have what Jesus has in Luke chapter 5 where he knows what's going on in the Pharisees' hearts. But I know this. I know that if you're not in Christ today, you have a serious problem. And that if you will trust in Christ today, that problem is fixed. And that you will have new life. And that he will raise you into that new life. And that he is calling you that in Christ, get up and walk. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.